Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. All right, so tonight's talk is about the relationship between love and free will. When we talk about free will, we talk about a matter of um, the concept of choice, the fact that we all have the ability to choose. And our will, um, our free will, is uh, that which was given to Adam. Uh, it's that uh, capacity to choose and that capacity to love and that capacity to maybe not love as much as we should or in the right way for the right reasons, the right people and the right things uh, that makes us human. Um, it's also um, uh, what makes us created in the image and likeness of God. So we say that the entire cosmos is created in the image of God. It would have to be. Uh, but only human persons uh, that, who have uh, an intellect and a will, uh, and therefore the capacity to love, because we have the capacity to know, uh, only human persons are created in the likeness of God. And that is, um, God creates us for one purpose. As uh, Gaudium et Space, uh, section 22 tells us, that purpose is uh, to love God. He creates us completely free of any other end. We're created for our own sake. And we're created to be uh, the kind of um, uh, creature that can come home to God. That's how we were designed to be. And uh, our first man failed. Adam, out of pride, disobeyed God. Uh, but God gave us an exemplar, that is, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ showed us what, it's meant, what we're meant to be, uh, what it uh, means as, uh, to be fully man. And that is, um, he showed us the truth about who we are. In uh, providing us with that vision, uh, if we accept it, then we have chosen with our absolute will to be to live up to that design and uh, occasionally uh, we'll have a problem that is out of fear or some other reason we'll fail we'll end up choosing the lesser good uh, you know everybody pursues the good we pursue the good that we perceive or the good that we feel that we're forced or coerced into and when we pursue those lesser goods, we've taken our eye off the ball. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And we have two explanations of it. In the first case, we have uh, Virgil uh, explaining it from, through the capacity of human reason in the Purgatorio. And he gives Dante just enough to whet Dante's appetite to want to know more. At which point he says, you know, I really can't tell you the fullness of it. Uh, because um, my telling you, uh, I don't know it. He said, uh, the fullness of it is that which is revealed, not that which uh, comes to us through our own natural insight and our own natural reason. He says, you'll have to wait for Beatrice to tell you the rest of it. And so um, Dante shifts, he's going to have to shift, uh, from his complete reliance on human reason. And we saw that in our very first lesson, uh, that the reason why Dante ended up in the dark wood is because he pursued, um, he tried to attain salvation on his own merits alone. He lost sight of divine revelation and divine love. And that's what Beatrice represents. And so Virgil can carry him as far as human reason can carry him, but he has to give himself over completely to revelation. <laughs> and it's interesting at the very top of the Purgatorio, just before they, um, or as they, they pass through the, uh, the wall of fire and enter into the Garden of Eden, 
Virgil points out, you know, I don't have much more to say to you. You know, human reason is about to reach its end. And he says, um, Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. Uh, which means that uh, Dante, in terms of uh, faith and reason, has reached the apex of what he can reach, but not fully in terms of faith. And uh, if we consider faith to be uh, that which um, is an active response to divine revelation, he hasn't yet encountered Beatrice and repented for his failure of faith, that is, his failure to respond actively to divine revelation, in that he turned away from it to pursue pagan philosophy and poetry, which, which is no problem in and of itself. Uh, there were plenty of, um, there's plenty of truth in the pagan world. And we know that when, uh, when we see St. Paul go up to the top of the Areopagus and say to the uh, Greeks, you are truly uh, highly religious men. I've walked all over your city and that's one thing I know about you. You are seeking the truth uh, through, your, through uh, the religions that you espouse. You believe in every God. You've got gods for everything. But I'm here to tell you, he says, do you even have a, an unknown God? I'm here to reveal to you that unknown God. He's got him for a while until he talks about the resurrection of the dead. So there's a lot of truth in the pagan world. And Dante uh, gleaned as much of it as he could. But the fullness of truth is the fullness of faith, which is the fullness of that active response to divine revelation, uh, which is explained very succinctly by Mary in John 2, 5. When she turns to the servants at the wedding of Cana, uh, a wedding being um, not uh, simply a contract between two persons, uh, but a covenant uh, between those persons and God. And that's uh, how Jesus raises it to the level of a sacrament. She turns uh, to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And that's probably the most succinct statement of faith uh, that we have. You know, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, uh, faith is the uh, substance of things hoped for. Uh, but ultimately, what is that substance? But uh, uh, doing whatever Christ tells you, whatever is revealed, whatever God is telling you to do, whatever is revealed in scripture and in tradition. So they had the uh, Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and they pursued those. And Christ says, look, do everything they tell you uh, of the Sanhedrin, but don't do what they do because they've got the words. They're just not pursuing them. They're not following them. They're not men of faith. Uh, they've got to do what the scriptures are telling them to do. And that's why James says in his letter, uh, faith without works is dead. Faith gets us to a point. Uh, faith is that which you, you do what you're told. You use the mind that God gave you to try to understand why. Why is this important for you? Why, why and how uh, is this something that can be done? You know, um, so Mary acts in faith. She says, okay, fine. I will allow God uh, to use me as the uh, chalice or the vessel, as the womb, as the home for uh, the incarnation, for his son. And I'll allow a divine person to come into the world through me. And then she asks a practical question. But how's that going to happen? I haven't been with any man. So she already gives her uh, assent to it. She is a woman of faith and she seeks understanding. It's kind of like what we do whenever we have a, um, an opportunity to respond to God, to respond to divine revelation in love. And that's the subject of today's talk. So, sorry for the very long preamble. We can jump into the next slide. So there are only three points here. The first point is love. The second point is will and free will. What does it mean to have a will? What does it mean for that will to be free? And what is a vow? What does it mean? Uh, so, for instance, in our wedding vows, in our marriage vows, and uh, if we uh, choose to become um, religious, in our religious vows, what does it mean to make a vow and then to honor it? 
we have responses from reason and we have responses from revelation. We get the responses from reason in, um, they start with Marco Lombardo, uh, who in the uh, third cornice of purgatory talks about um, the will and about free will. They continue through the ledge of sloth, which is the fourth cornice of purgatory, because they've got time to talk. Uh, like in hell, uh, when they were waiting in the seventh circle to get used to the stench that was coming beneath before they descended into the seventh circle, Virgil doesn't waste the time. He uses the time to tell Dante something about the structure of hell, the structure of um, the place that they're in. Well, here, he's doing something very similar. On the ledge of Sloth, he offers Dante uh, an explanation of the structure of really the entire cosmos because he talks about free will and he talks about love. And in talking about these two things, he eventually gets to a stopping point and says, you know, I just, I can't talk about it anymore. But he says three things about love that are useful. He says there's three kinds of love. There's the love that turns toward bad ends. And so love that's defective. What I want, I know that uh, to know something is to love it. And to know something means that I'm attached to it. There's three stages of getting to love uh, that, um, that are talked about in Canto 18. Uh, the first is we apprehend something. We see it. It's attractive to us. We come to know it a little bit, and we're drawn to it. So uh, the first thing is we see, uh, for instance, uh, uh, another person, and we see the form of that person. And we say, oh, that's a, that is a true uh, flesh of my flesh, as Adam says of Eve when he first meets her. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a person who's come from me or come out of me. So he apprehends that uh, she's someone to know. And then the next thing is he's drawn to her. And uh, just like um, uh, whatever it is that we look at and apprehend, it may be uh, the iPhone 11. We see it and we go, oh, that's got a better camera than my iPhone 10. I want to get it. So we're drawn to it. Once we're drawn to it, the third stage is uh, we want it to be with us and we want to be with it. So it becomes part of our identity. If the way we move towards something uh, happens in that way, we see it, we understand it, we apprehend it, uh, we're drawn to it, and then we want to identify with it, uh, then there's a few ways that that can go wrong. And uh, we see through Mount Purgatory those three ways. The first way is that defect of love that I was talking about, where um, for reasons of our own, uh, we are um, corrupting whatever it is uh, that, um, that we should otherwise be loving. So uh, we, through pride or envy or wrath, consume uh, that thing uh, or want to consume that thing or uh, want to uh, lord over somebody who has that thing or who doesn't have the, the thing that we have. So pride. And then if something good happens to them, we're sorry for it, so envy. And then if um, they get in our way, uh, we're going to get angry. And we're going to lash out inordinately through verbal abuse or through sullenness, where instead of the anger going outward or lashing out, it lashes inward. And we see examples of this in hell. Uh, in the uh, fifth circle of hell, uh, we see the wrathful. And then in the eighth and ninth circles, we see the, um, uh, the envious and the proud, uh, those who abuse their reason in pursuit of their selfishness. A uh, second way that love can go wrong is through laxity. And laxity could either be uh, uh, denseness, we don't uh, perceive the good in something and therefore we don't pursue it, or obtuseness, we actually see the good in something but we prefer not to pursue it. And that's, uh, we call that sloth. And you can see in the image here, um, on that ledge of sloth, uh, there's an angel uh, of zeal that's beckoning them. 
And actually the angel is not really beckoning so much as waiting because it's up to every soul in purgatory to decide when uh, he or she is filled with the corresponding virtue, no longer is affected by the vice and can get up and walk away. For Statius, whom we meet um, in just above this circle uh, at the end of the avaricious, for Statius, uh, he was on this circle of sloth for 500 years. And that's because um, he was a spendthrift. So he definitely was going to spend some time in the, uh, in the ledge of avarice. And he spent 400 years there, according to, uh, to the uh, story. So a total of 900 years just on these two ledges alone. Statius says, uh, you know, he was a spendthrift. He was a prodigal. And then he read something uh, by Virgil. What he had read by Virgil was something that convinced him that it was possible to spread one's hands too wide in spending. And he started pulling himself back from prodigality. And he started pursuing the virtue of liberality. And the liberality is the, if you recall, uh, the virtue that enables us to spend the right amounts on the right things at the right time and on the right people. Really a question of justice. But if you spend all of your money, when a problem comes up, say uh, we go into a global pandemic and everybody's uh, uh, unable to, uh, to get work, if you've wasted your entire substance, you're not going to be of any help to, uh, to someone who may need assistance uh, financially. That might actually be the right person at the right time on the right thing and for the right reason, uh, but you're unable to participate in that because, uh, because you've wasted um, what you what what otherwise you've been able to apply in an appropriate way and of course the opposite of the, the prodigality is the avaricious the hoarders the people who won't let go who never spend the right amounts and the right things at the right time for the right reasons because they don't want to loose their fingers so statius realizes um that that's possible and it's because he read something of virgil but at the same time he was listening to the new street preachers people walking around the towns uh talking about this child that was born. Um, and the child that was born was a child that could save the world. And that kind of talk appealed to him so much because he had read Virgil's fourth eclogue, where Virgil had pointed out that a new child was being born into this world who was its salvation. Now, uh, Virgil was actually uh, referring to a secular ruler because he was a poet who needed patrons. Uh, he wasn't uh, referring uh, to Christ. And it's for that reason, Virgil gets stuck in limbo. Statius, however, bouncing from Virgil's writings, is able to use them to map himself onto what the street preachers are talking about. But he was afraid of being eaten by lions, and so he didn't uh, proclaim his Christianity. In fact, if you look historically, Statius died a pagan. But uh, Dante takes liberties with that, uh, has Statius uh, accept the gospel message in his heart and start living it just privately. That's why he spends those 400 years on the ledge of sloth for inappropriate zeal. So that's laxity or a lack of zeal. In his case, he saw the good, he just didn't pursue it, as opposed to being too obtuse to recognize the good when he saw it. The third kind of defect in love uh, is, more of a, um, is more of an excess of love for the created thing. And so uh, we see uh, something shiny and we reach for it, like Gollum grabbing the ring. Or we see um, something that looks tasty and we just can't stop uh, consuming it. And we turn our bodies into trash cans. Or we see some uh, person of um, uh, another person and that person looks to us to be physically uh, attractive. And we spend all of our time focusing on the creation that we lose sight of the creator. And you can see this in uh, heaven when Dante meets uh, Kunitsa in the third sphere of heaven, the sphere of Venus, the sphere of the lovers. Kunitsa tells her story. She had a lot of husbands and a lot of men until one day she saw through the creation to its creator. And after then, her absolute will mapped onto the creator. And she couldn't go back to her, um, her amorous escapades. 
because she realized that uh, uh, what G.K. Chesterton talked about. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a whorehouse is seeking God. So those are the three ways love can go wrong. There's many ways love can go right. In fact, if you look at it objectively from a 30,000 uh, foot point of view, uh, love going wrong is, uh, it's not that exciting. It's pretty uh, static and pretty um, stunted. But if you look at the myriad of ways that love can go right, look at the life of John Paul II, or look at the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta, or any of the saints. Uh, though they had a past, or they may have had a past, that we know was uh, lending itself to one vice or another. Uh, take, for instance, St. Augustine's uh, Confessions, where he writes, uh, Lord, give me chastity, but just not yet because he's not yet ready to move toward the fullness of what it would mean to love another person uh, as another person, as the image and likeness of God. He's still uh, trapped in his lust and prefers to use other people uh, to satisfy his own desires. So let's move uh, then to Picarda in the um, uh, first sphere of heaven. Picarda uh, is alone. There's a reference to another person there, Constance or Constanza. But Picarda was a nun. She had taken a, made a religious vow. So her absolute will mapped itself onto her creator. But she let something get in the way. She allowed her brother, uh, Corso uh, Donati, to uh, violently remove her from the, um, from the convent and force her into a marriage uh, with a buddy of his in order to gain a political alliance. Her conditional will, out of fear, assented to that. And uh, for that reason, uh, she ends up in the lowest sphere of heaven. And Dante's asked her about that. He goes, well, you know, you're in a pretty low place. Uh, don't you feel badly about that? And she says, no, because my will is completely given over to God. I realize that now. And uh, if I was afraid at one point and I allowed my conditional will, uh, my uh, free will to accede to the certain conditions of my um, having been captured and forced into marriage, if I allowed that to affect me then, uh, I'm not going to allow it to affect me now. I mean, it can't. My will, if I'm in heaven, has to be perfectly um, in line with God's will. So if this is where God needs me or God wants me or God says that I am, this is where I am. You don't find out till later that she's not really there in the first sphere of heaven. She simply manifests herself there. All the souls that Dante sees throughout the uh, Paradiso are in heaven uh, or in the Empyrean. They're sitting on the thrones, uh, none more distant from uh, God and the love of God and the warmth and light of God as any other. They're all exactly the same distance away. Uh, but it's a state of um, they all have full cups of grace. Their cups are, uh, are either larger or smaller, uh, depending upon the amount of love uh, they expressed and the, uh, the amount of um, grace they allowed to flow through them into others and into their love for God. So uh, Christ says at one point, he says, um, there are, what are the two greatest commandments? Or what's the greatest commandment? That's the question he's asked. Um, and in Luke 10, 27, he gets somebody to repeat it back to him. And he says, yes, that's true. And the other uh, synoptic gospels, uh, he's the one who says it. But um, the answer is to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. That means your conditional will and your absolute will are the same. Then to love your, and uh, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then what is it to love? Uh, to love, uh, we learn from uh, St. Paul, is the greatest of the uh, theological virtues. Uh, ultimately, uh, love, uh, God is love. And for us to fully love means that we uh, fully desire the good for another uh, and fully desire, uh, understand that a good that occurs for another is the same kind of good that comes back to us, that a rising boat 
or a rising tide raises all boats. And so when Dante moves um, into the second sphere of heaven, the Emperor Justinian shows up and says, oh, look, here comes someone who will increase our love. Because they realize that every new soul that uh, becomes a part of that sphere, even if that soul is passing through the sphere, increases the light of love that that sphere is capable of, um, of demonstrating. Or uh, the, the, uh, the degree to which that sphere is capable of illuminating. And so we can see this in light bulbs or in candles. If you bring a lot of them in the same room, or if you increase the luminosity of any of them, uh, you get a brighter light. In uh, the Easter Vigil, uh, which we did not get to experience this Easter, uh, but normatively, um, one candle will light a thousand. You know, uh, the, the light multiplies. The light goes viral. And um, those thousand candles that are lit can illuminate an entirely darkened church or space. That's what it's like for another person to experience a good. And so you see in the uh, second uh, cornice of purgatory, you see um, envy uh, as a sorrow for another's good. And you see that the uh, virtue uh, that is um, filling those souls there, the virtue uh, with which they uh, desire to fill their cavity, and that great cavity is, um, is the cavity of envy, uh, that virtue um, is caritas, which is love. So it makes sense then that you would have a conversation up the mountain that would lead itself uh, into the nature of uh, love within a creature who is capable of free will. We can choose not to love. Uh, that is, we can choose through our own selfishness uh, to love ourself uh, more than we love another. Uh, we can choose through pride or through envy or through, um, through wrath uh, to turn away from others uh, for our own self-glorification. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we're not pursuing a good because all persons pursue the good. What it does mean is that we're pursuing a partial good, a good for me now. We're pursuing the creation, such as me, uh, as opposed to the creator, such as the one who created me. You can see how that is uh, spiritually stunting. So if that's the case, um, I end up like all those souls in hell. That is completely incapable of spiritual growth. If that's what I choose, if that's what I yearn for, then it makes sense that all those souls on the banks of Acheron, uh, waiting to get into hell, are anxious to be placed where they chose to be in life. And so you've got Capanius in the seventh circle of hell, uh, who uh, summarizes the concept of contrapasso very clearly in a single sentence. He says, what I was in life, I am now dead. He'll never grow as opposed to the souls in heaven who are constantly growing. And when we get into um, the seventh sphere of heaven, you meet a guy named uh, Peter Damien, who points out, you know, we always grow. Uh, we're always being fed by God. And our, we're, we're growing by leaps and bounds every, every uh, you know, the entire time we're here. We have infinite spiritual growth, which is the beauty of being a finite being because we can grow infinitely within an infinite being and we'll never plumb the depth of that infinite being. And uh, the way to grow is not only through love with God, but importantly, through love with man. As uh, John points out in First uh, John uh, 4.20, he says, uh, anyone who says he loves God but hates his neighbor is a liar because you can't love the God you cannot see if you cannot love the man or the neighbor you can see. And uh, that's because all of us are creating the image and likeness of God. So it doesn't make much sense for me to be angry at somebody and say, oh, I love God, though. And for this reason, you know, uh, we're told 
that if we have any grudge with anybody uh, before we give our gift at the altar, before we do the completion of that gift, leave it at the altar, go and make peace with the person, and then uh, come and finish the, uh, the offering. And uh, so in Mass, we do a sign of peace. Uh, we may not be making peace with the actual person who's irked us or vexed us, uh, with whom we've got some contention, uh, but we're making a sign of peace uh, with uh, our fellow man, with our neighbor. If, uh, if you're actually uh, living in grave sin uh, through inordinate wrath, stop what you're doing, like right after this class. I mean, you can do it now if you wanted to, if you felt so called. Uh, text or contact that other person. Actually, don't text. Actually, talk to that other person. Resolve that um, issue. Uh, at least to the point, you may not resolve the technical thing. Let's say you've got a friend who stole $20,000 of your money. That person can't give it back. Uh, but you're holding the grudge against that person or you're holding the wrath against that person keeps you from growing spiritually. And so all sin, uh, even if you've found some way to justify it in your head, prevents your moving forward. And this is why uh, ultimately we're the, um, the agents of our own salvation in the sense of um, those souls on Mount Purgatory who know when they've completed their uh, penance, their purification. Um, but we can't uh, pursue our salvation uh, without grace, as St. Augustine pointed out to Pelagius, and as Beatrice ultimately points out to uh, Dante, because uh, it's only through grace that God freely provides that enables us to come to him. We cannot merit it on our own and through our own actions or through our own activities. Uh, we have to accept the grace that God provides. Now, God is literally dumping on us oceans of mercy and grace right now. I mean, uh, we're swimming in it. And uh, we're, we're like fish in water. You say, oh, we don't perceive any water around here uh, because it's all around us. Uh, but most of us like to carry around umbrellas. Uh, because uh, we just got to be me. And so uh, these oceans of mercy that are dumping on us, uh, we're holding umbrellas up to keep from getting splashed too hard because we feel that will, uh, that will lessen who we are in our own free will and our own independence, something that um, John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor called radical autonomy, uh, where we don't participate in the law of God uh, we pursue our will rather than God's will. And uh, you've heard um, preachers say uh, that it's like, instead of saying thy will be done, we say my will be done. And God loves us so much that he lets us make those choices and decide for ourselves our eternal destinies, either in a state of grace, uh, which may end up causing us to spend a thousand or so years in purgatory, um, but, you know, if you hit purgatory, you're, you've got a foot into heaven um, or in a state of sin, uh, which is uh, uh, a, a lack of eternal and joyful communion with our creator. And, but we know that uh, there's still some kind of relationship there uh, because uh, the worst sinner in hell is still sustained in being. God loves us so much. He doesn't destroy. We find this out in the Paradiso. He does not destroy that which he directly creates. And he directly creates every human soul that forms a human body that enters this world and grows spiritually or dies um, somewhere along the way. And uh, it's the state of that soul at the moment of its death uh, that uh, is the state uh, in which it will persist for all eternity. And that's what Dante is uh, demonstrating in his entire apocalypse uh, from the time he walks through the dark wood uh, to the time that he meets God face to face uh, in the hundredth canto. Responses from reason are those that we can know, um, that we can figure out on our own. Responses from revelation are those that we have to be told uh, because we can't figure them out on our own. We had no idea on our own that God was personal, that God was a person, that God was relationship, that he was three persons in one.
uh, in one substance. And that as God's being a person, he has a personality, and he wants relationship with us, whom he created as persons. When we fail to live up to that relationship, we are living in a state of sin. Uh, when we uh, seek reconciliation and we pursue that relationship, we are living in a state of grace. So there are only two states. Now, this is something that the pagan philosophers and poets did not know. They had no concept that God was relationship or that God is relationship. They had no concept that God was somebody who wanted relationship with them and therefore someone they could personally offend. Aristotle got as far as to saying, you know, we can't have a, uh, an infinite regress. Therefore, there's got to be like one creator. And even Plotinus, uh, somewhat later, came to this point and said it's the one. But he didn't get to the point of, well, wait a second, if there's one guy, then there's got to be a relationship that he made with us and that he wants us to do certain things because he didn't have any revelation. And neither did Virgil, and that's why Virgil's in limbo. Um, so Virgil has a great capacity to understand the nature between virtue and vice because the, any pagan could understand that. And that's why they're called the virtuous pagans uh, if they're in limbo. Uh, but he didn't have the capacity to understand, to have faith, to do whatever God told him to do, because he hadn't heard what God wanted him to do. You might be able to say, well, that's invincible ignorance. He just didn't know, and therefore he shouldn't be in limbo. God should have found some way to bring him into heaven. And uh, maybe uh, in Paradiso 19, uh, Dante alludes to the fact that it's possible that all those souls uh, in limbo will be able to persist for all eternity in the Garden of Eden. Uh, once they go back and get their bodies after the general resurrection. Who knows? Uh, but we do know this. God has a plan. We trust God's plan. We walk in faith as we do whatever God tells us to do. And like Picarda, uh, we agree that God's plan is good. In fact, uh, God's plan is better than our plan because uh, we can only uh, see darkly and in a finite way uh, because we are the creation. We know uh, the created uh, thing through its effects. God knows us as our cause, and that's the difference. Okay, so um, uh, that's a good gloss on love, will, and free will, and the vow. What are some thoughts? Uh, when you think of love, what do you think of? And I'll jump over to the chat. Dr. Mahfoud, I had a question. I'm sorry if you don't mind me asking real quick. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, this is about the comment you made about St. Uh, Augustine about the um, give me chastity, but not yet. Mm -hmm. um, and you said how he, what, he was unable to love a person as a, you know, image and likeness of God. And he preferred to see them as an object and use them. Like he, he preferred that, uh, the sinful choice. And I, I, I have an issue with that because I, I think that like St. Paul said, we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we actually want to do. Um, and so I think like, because we're born with concupiscence and all that, it, there's this thing in us that, that some, that, you know, does the sin and we don't really want it we like truly like who we really are doesn't want that sin so um anyway i, I was just wondering if you could speak to that thank you sure lucas you've got uh, great uh, questions so he writes that about his pagan self he writes that about um uh you when he used to be when he was younger and he just uh, he enjoyed having a lot of sexual relationships he enjoyed uh, the way it made him feel so uh, we've got uh, three appetites, um, and maybe I'll talk about those a bit. Uh, we have two appetites we share with the lower animals, the non-rational creatures. Uh, those are the concupiscible and the irascible appetites. So concupiscible is like a sensory appetite. We want what feels good. You know, we want um, uh, what makes us uh, feel satisfied, and on a very animal level. So we want sex, we want food, we want money. Um, and so um, uh, money uh, in the sense that we want objects. You know, it doesn't have to be money. Maybe I've got a, uh, uh, an inordinate desire for books, uh, which my wife believes I do because I've got 18,000 books I'm surrounded by right now. But I don't want to have 18,000 books. 
what I want is to have uh, the knowledge they contain. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's my own uh, failing because there's really only one knowledge that's necessary, right? And that is of uh, Jesus Christ uh, crucified, uh, Lord and Savior, which is a spiritual knowledge. And uh, as a lay Dominican, we believe that the spiritual formation is identical to intellectual formation because we're using our rational intellect, which enables us to enter into joyful, uh, eternal and joyful communion with God. So St. Augustine um, suddenly sees the light. And when he realizes his lustfulness is holding him back, I mean, it, what you said about uh, we innately understand the good and we pursue it, once we discover it and once we uh, start moving toward it, it's hard to go back to our former selves because uh, we end up like St. Paul. Uh, we end up realizing that what we're doing is wrong and therefore we, realize, uh, we end up agreeing that the law is good. Uh, because if we're conflicted over what we're doing, uh, then we know we shouldn't be doing it. Anyway, that's, uh, that's where St. Augustine gets to. And once he gets to that, he's on his way to becoming St. Augustine, as opposed to uh, Pelagius, who is not St. Pelagius. <laughs> he's, uh, he ends up uh, pursuing his true good, and that becomes for him a more important than the created thing, that is, the creator, the source of all being. Uh, we have this thing called conscience. And pre-conversion, we still realize when we're doing something wrong. Uh, as Charles Rice writes in 50 uh, Questions on the Natural Law, he says that even the thief knows that stealing is wrong when someone steals from him. You know, So um, you can uh, condition yourself to bad behavior. You, know, you can start, uh, but you're always pursuing the good, the good that you perceive the good that you know. And this is why Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics, even a suicide is pursuing the good because he's pursuing uh, what would be better for him as a life uh, as a, a, in non-existence than what he's experiencing in existence. So ultimately his crime isn't against, um, he's not committing an injustice against himself because anything that we choose is a justice uh, in our minds. He's committing an injustice against society because he's pulling himself out of the framework and fabric of society, the quilt of society, and ripping apart other people's lives in so doing. Even the pre-converted person knows that he's doing something that he, that he shouldn't be doing. And you can get that just from, uh, if, the, if the pangs of conscience don't stab you like the furies that they are, the consequences will. You know, So you end up pursuing a, a relationship, a sexual relationship with somebody, and the other person, um, uh, you know, it falls apart in one way or another. And you're like, oh, I did that completely wrong. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have lived with the person before we got married. Maybe I should have uh, understood the fullness of what a relationship with another human person means. Uh, but uh, the unhappiest people are those who live a life of vice. And mm. even if, they, uh, even if uh, they never converted, they're still um, uh, unhappy because vices tend to compete with other vices, uh, whereas the virtues harmonize. So you can't really be lustful and gluttonous and avaricious all at the same time. I mean, you can try, but you're going to end up, you know, beating yourself up, choosing which one of those things um, you want to pursue or uh, how those things are ripping your life apart if you try to pursue them all. Um, but you can be uh, humble and uh, loving and, um, and meek all at once. And if you are those things, if you are the virtues all at once, they harmonize with one another and they build each other up rather than tear each other down. And that may be a better way of saying it. Sure. But I mean, don't take my word for it. Read uh, the confessions. I mean, why do we uh, do those things? Why do we do, why is St. Paul right? <laughs> we do the thing we don't want to do and uh, we don't do the thing we want to do. Is it just concupiscence or an inclination to sin? Are we, um, are we allowing our reason to go lax? Uh, because if you think of the concupiscible appetite, which is uh, that which seeks pleasure, pursues pleasure and avoids pain, uh, and you think of uh, the irascible appetite, which is the emotional appetite. So the emotional appetite always finds its, uh, um, at least this is what the philosophers say, it finds its beginning point in the concupiscible appetite. 
So you want something, you can't have it, you get angry. And then the moment you get it back, because it terminates in the concupiscible appetite as well, then you're no longer angry. But uh, these are appetites that uh, my dog or my cat have. And I know my cat has uh, this kind of appetite because uh, if I don't feed her right, she uh, scratches me until I feed her and then she does stop scratching me. So uh, you can see how they work in animals, at least on that level. Uh, But what we have is a rational appetite. And you may think, oh, if I've got a rational appetite, which is my will, and I'm going to choose something, and that thing that I choose is a higher good uh, presented to me by the intellect, then I need to crush my lower appetites, quell them, and push them away so that I can focus purely on my rational appetite, my, uh, my intellect, and those higher goods. But because we are human persons with a specific difference of rationality that separates us from the non-rational animals, so even those that look like us, like uh, apes and chimpanzees, uh, they don't have reason, they don't have um, intellect, and therefore they don't have will. They don't have a rational appetite. Um, if we are um, like that, uh, then we might say that um, we need to crush these, uh, these lower appetites, but it, truly what we need to do is bring them into conformity because they exist for a reason. Uh, they bring them into conformity with our higher powers. We do have a sex drive. But that sex drive is not meant for us to jump around like St. Augustine, uh, uh, having sex with a bunch of people. It's meant for the purpose of procreation. And you might say, oh, well, you know, I'm married to somebody, and therefore uh, I engage in this activity in order to be unitive. Uh, But we would say, as Catholics, you can't be unitive unless you're also being procreative. That doesn't mean you have to have a baby every time you have sex. Uh, What it means is that you have to be open to the presence of the Holy Spirit in that relationship because covenant is with God. God will choose um, whether to form a soul uh, or create a soul that forms a body. If you're open to participating in that act of life, in that procreative act, therefore you allow the Holy Spirit to be a part of it and you want the Holy Spirit to be a part of it, then you're acting appropriately with another uh, human person. To do less is not raising, uh, conforming those, uh, that concupiscible appetite with reason, with the intellect. Uh, same thing with eating. You know, uh, there are people who just eat to live. I mean, I'm sorry, they, they live to eat. Uh, they don't eat to live. And uh, because they're living to eat, they turn themselves into what Aristotle calls in the Nicomachean Ethics, belly gods. So the pagans got it right. You know, all this talk of virtue and vice is what builds um, the Summa Theologia, uh, terms of where the human powers are and what humans can know uh, on their own. Where uh, they got it wrong was the, uh, uh, that they didn't have access to divine revelation. They weren't uh, able to understand that, uh, that God was relationship. Uh, in the way that uh, even the Jews who died before Christ came. When Christ went down to hell on the Holy Saturday uh, and harrowed hell, uh, he brought people out of hell. And so those were the people of the covenant. And in Dante's world, Dante has Virgil talk about that. You know, there was a guy who came down here. He, He showed up, he kicked in the doors, he pulled out a lot of souls, and we were the ones he left behind. Dante learns in the paradise not to question that, uh, that what God has ordained is good because, it's, um, uh, because God has a plan in his providence ultimately for every, his entire creation. We will walk in faith by doing whatever he tells us, that which we understand that he is telling us, and live our lives with faith, hope, and charity, loving God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So we pray for people um, who are uh, mean to us. Uh, We pray for people who are dead. We hope that everybody makes it to heaven, Uh, though we expect that some people may not, not because God is mean, but because they themselves chose their own path and their own eternal destiny. How did Dante choose pride, envy, and anger specifically as the perversions of love? Uh, Defects of love. You could say that all of it's perversion of love, even um, lust, gluttony, and uh, and avarice. Uh, Those uh, are perversions uh, through an excess of um, love from the material thing, for the creation. 
pride, envy, and wrath are uh, defects of love. So they're also perversions, but they're perversions in a defective way. That is, uh, you're not um, uh, pursuing the right amount of humility, meaning that you know who you are in relation to God and man. So uh, he would have gotten wrath out of the Nicomachean ethics. And uh, pride and envy uh, are purely spiritual sins. They, they have no material basis. And he would have gotten that out of uh, classical literature like Oedipus Rex. I mean, just the Sophocles series alone has pride, envy, and wrath in it. Uh, how he would have classified them, he would have gotten the classifications perhaps. Um, though he got uh, hell directly out of the Nicomachean Ethics. And you can walk through the Nicomachean Ethics and you can see Aristotle talks about lust. He talks about, uh, you know, these sins that are also mapped onto our material being uh, because they come out of our concupiscible and our irascible appetites. Pride and envy, uh, I mean, for them to be uh, purely spiritual sins, meaning there's no material basis for them. They're the sins that the angels have. He may have gotten out of our scripture, out of our uh, faith tradition, out of revelation. Though uh, you can see them in classical antiquity, in the classical writings, you can see pride and envy and wrath. Uh, but to make them purely spiritual sins, take some Christian uh, awareness. Uh, the purely spiritual sin is that which is purely uh, comes purely out of who we are as spiritual beings. Uh, that is, there's no material benefit to pride. I mean, you can lord over somebody else, but you know, I don't know if that's a material benefit. I had a uh, question. Sure. I know that Dante has all these like different levels in heaven, and I was kind of curious about like. I don't know, the view of the Catholic Church, and if heaven is viewed as sort of like a love system, everyone's equal in heaven, or if there is actually these tiers that like Dante has within heaven. Dante uses, it's a both and for Dante. So everyone is equal in heaven. That is everyone, if you can imagine a basketball, and you open up the basketball, and you've got little stadium chairs all on the inside of the basketball, and you close it back up, that's heaven. That's the Imperium. So everybody is exactly the same distance from the center point, which is God, as anybody else. And Dante's, the way he describes it is he's got these angels moving between God and man. That's all they're doing. They go to God, they get stuff. They go to man, they minister to man. They go back to God, they get more stuff. They're feeding man. Their job, the job of the angels is to take care of us, which is kind of impressive, really, because you think, oh, these angels are so mighty and everything, uh, purely spiritual beings. Uh, but they're messengers. They're, um, they're meant to uh, uh, use uh, as assistance in his creation, we'll say in Dante's world. Now, uh, in terms of um, your level in heaven, uh, that is based on how much grace uh, you allowed yourself to accept as you move through life. So if you accepted just a little grace, you're going to be like um, smaller in terms of the size of your cup of grace in heaven than if you accepted a lot of grace. Like Mary, full of grace, has more grace than any of us, you know, any other human person. So uh, in that sense, uh, she's the most perfect human person, you might say, in heaven. Whereas the rest of us, we're all still perfect in heaven, but uh, we have less grace. So um, Tate, for instance, uh, a good way to explain it is perhaps how the Greek Orthodox explain it. And the Greek Orthodox, if you ever try to look at their dogma, uh, or get a Greek Orthodox person to explain like a dogmatic um, concept to you, uh, they have a hard time doing it uh, because um, they haven't uh, systematically gone through like the Latin church has, the uh, relationship between faith and reason. So what they would say is that everybody, even those who would be in hell, uh, see the beatific vision. Everybody is exposed to the sweetness and light of God. But those people who are not oriented toward that experience it as a burning, singeing fire. And that's hell. Those who are oriented toward it experience it as sweetness and light. So imagine an orange that has a very thick rind. You might have, um, God has saved you, brought you into heaven. You have a sufficient, you die in a state of grace, but you've got a really thick, orange rind around you that prevents you from absorbing the fullness of God's sweetness and light. Whereas other people, uh, when they die in a state of grace, go to heaven and they don't have a rind around them. 
they can experience that sweetness and light unencumbered by their own protective covering or shell that they put around themselves in life, that umbrella that they're holding over their heads because they got to be me. When God wants to throw grace, shower them in grace, bathe them in grace, they're like, um, I think I'm clean, God. Let me be me. It's what Graham Greene did when he had the opportunity. He was a British novelist. When he had the opportunity to meet Padre Pio, chickened out at the last minute. And people said, why'd you leave? Padre Pio was coming to see you. And he said, well, I got to thinking about it and I was afraid. I was afraid that if I met Padre Pio, that that man could change me. And I like myself just the way I am. That was Graham Greene's response to the prospect of salvation and grace. Uh, in a way, we all have Graham Greene's response. So in Dante's schema, this is the contrapasso of heaven. You think you see contrapasso in hell? You think you see it in purgatory? You definitely see it in heaven. Because contrapasso isn't um, uh, what we classically think of it or what we, um, we say it is as a punishment fits the crime. We say it's the state in which we die is the state in which we persist for all eternity. If we die in a state of grace, we're in a state of grace. But maybe we didn't accept as much as, uh, as somebody else did. And that's where you get the gradations. So in the first three spheres of heaven, in the first three spheres of paradise, there's a failure of faith. In the first sphere, that's Picarda, there's a, because she didn't do what God told her to do. There's a failure of love, uh, of hope in the second sphere. Uh, those are the people that pursued uh, earthly honor, which is a good thing. Uh, uh, they pursued the good because they wanted honor. It's a, it's a good reason to pursue the good, perhaps, but it's the least of all good reasons to pursue the good. And then there's uh, the third sphere, Venus, which is a defi uh, deficiency in love. And in those three spheres, in the first three spheres of the Paradiso, uh, you have, uh, we call them anthropomorphic spheres, because they're all within the shadow of the earth. So Dante sees, when he sees the souls there, he sees the souls as corporeal forms. He sees their faces their clothing, their bodies, and all of that. Once he hits the fourth sphere, he's out of the shadow of the earth. Everybody shows up as points of light. And that's why um, it's not funny to imagine St. Thomas dancing three times around Dante. You think this huge guy is like dancing like, a, like an elephant ballerina, uh, but he's really just a point of light dancing around Dante. I, I, I may have a tendency to over-answer because... Um, because I can think of lots of examples all the time, so I try to be concise. My apologies if I'm not. Um, I have trouble comprehending how, though there's no time in heaven, we can constantly grow while there. You're thinking of time as the measure of motion, which is the classical definition. In a timeless place, you're constantly being filled with the sweetness and light of God. If you weren't constantly being better, uh, then uh, it would be like uh, what... Father Larry Brennan, who taught me fundamental theology once said, he said, you know, basically everything we know about heaven makes us uh, think that it will be interesting for about 15 minutes. But we, we get beyond that when we realize that, uh, that heaven is a, a, a constant exposure to God's love. So how can't you grow? This I would chalk up to being a mystery. How can you change in the face of an unchanging God? So, um, Dante may have a good explanation for it. In the very last canto, he's moving directly into the mind of God. And he says, whoa, God is, there's so many changes happening here. He's this thing, and now he's this thing, and now he's this thing. And he starts to say, wait a second, I thought God was immutable. Why is God changing? And then suddenly it occurs to him, God's not changing. He is. He's changing in his capacity to understand the mind of God. And at the very end, he says, I don't think I can cleave the mind of God and understand what uh, and who he is. And then suddenly it happened. And then he's back at his writing desk. So it's probably the most anticlimactic moment in the entire history of literature. But what it uh, demonstrates is that um, we always grow in God. You're growing in God right now. You grow in God in purgatory. Um, what Dante is saying is there's no reason to stop growing spiritually for all eternity. And uh, he has Peter Damien say that in the seventh sphere of heaven. So when we get to the Paradiso, which we'll talk about um, uh, next week, we talk about the whole cosmology uh, in relation to Contrapasso, which is actually next week's uh, talk. We're going to talk about uh, different states of being 
and how um, those different states of being are manifest throughout uh, heaven uh, or hell, purgatory, and heaven. So uh, maybe we'll talk more about that next week as well. Continual improvement. Imagine that you never stop growing. Uh, I mean, for eternity, you're always becoming better by spades over what you are at this present moment. You, you notice that when Dante's moving through heaven, he's not so much moving through heaven as the imagery of his just growing. I mean, he's expanding like a balloon. Uh, and you pick that up around the fourth sphere when you suddenly see him uh, expand into the second garland of souls. And you're like, wait a second, he's staying put. He hasn't moved any. And then you get a sense of movement uh, as he's expanding, but you get a real sense of movement when he enters into the river of light, which is the, um, the river in heaven through which he passes in order to get to the mystical rose. If God doesn't destroy what he creates, will the devil and his forces always exist? Yes, they will always exist. Uh, and so will all the souls in hell always exist. And they will always be sustained in their being by God. Now get your mind around that. Because if they always exist, and they have to be sustained by their creator. God is the one still holding them in his hand. So have you ever held a kitten that's just trying to get away from you? That's us. We're always trying to get away from God. Those who are in hell are sustained for all eternity by the very God that they're trying to get away from. Uh, St. Augustine wrote that the gates of hell, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That's it. God bless you, everybody. I'll see you next week.